This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a number we're almost afraid to say because it could change by the time it comes out of our mouths. The field of Democratic presidential candidates has grown to 19. And we expect more entries, including former Vice President Joe Biden and U.S. Senator from Colorado Michael Bennett. The challenge is to stand out from the pack, which I talked about with former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, one of the 19. Thank you for being with us. Glad to be back. CPR News has been following you on the campaign trail. Recently, my colleague Anthony Cotton traveled to South Carolina and Alabama, where you made appearances. And it struck me in your interview with him that you sounded, at least on that day, tired. And I (laughs) I wonder if I was reading that right. Well, that was at the end of a, I think it was a nine-day or ten-day trip. And so when you're sleeping in motel beds and you don't get to see your family... And each day is 12 or 14 hours. Sometimes the last two or three days, you, you lose your edge a little bit. I, I think that's fair to say. What do you enjoy about it? Oh, I think it's a gift to be in a small city or, or a town in Iowa and be invited into someone's living room with a half dozen people. And they tell you their darkest secrets. They tell you their, their greatest dreams and aspirations. It, it becomes very intimate. I'd like to talk about some issues. I hear Republicans using the label socialism a lot to describe Democratic priorities like universal health care, which you support, although you don't embrace Medicare for all. But in general, how do you think Democrats should respond to the socialism label? Is it one you even agree with? I certainly don't agree with it. When people are talking about socialism, they're implying that You know, government is going to override our system of free markets, which I don't think – I haven't heard anyone say that. You know, there are certain things that government does better than individual citizens can do. And in that sense, build roads is a good example. You know, make sure that we have mobility of the national defense, Uh, even our police force, our firefighters. These are all organizations and institutions that government is going to do much better than any individual is going to do. In that same sense – I think our economic system, it's never been a completely open system. It needs some level of regulation. Otherwise, we'd have monopolies in every single industry. We need to figure out what the right regulatory framework is. And to be very blunt, over the last 40 years, I think it's fair to say that we've wandered from that type of an economy that really allowed people in the middle class, allowed poor people, both security and and opportunity. And I think we need to find our way back to an economic system where we really are allowing people, if they're willing to work hard and play by the rules, to begin saving money to get ahead. You hesitated in an interview a while back to call yourself a capitalist. And I wonder what you have thought about that in the weeks since. Well, that was, you know, they're always trying to, especially on the cable news, they're trying to put a label on you. And oftentimes these labels divide us and keep us from talking about the real issue itself. So a large number of Americans right now think that a capitalist is someone who just moves capital, in most cases money, from one investment to another with no heart or emotion. And so many people think being a capitalist is a bad thing. I always refer to myself as an entrepreneur when I was growing up. You know, capitalists often, you know, Daddy Warbucks in the in the cartoon strip Little Orphan Annie was always portrayed as this kind of 
ruthless, uh, someone who moved capital from one place to another. I think the key is to get away from that. The bottom line is we should be talking about how do we get our economy so that it creates more opportunity for everybody, not just for the people at the top. Last week, we saw the redacted version of the Mueller reports. What are your thoughts on how Democrats should proceed with it? Let's just let's look at the facts as we now know them that I think everyone agrees to that the Trump campaign gleefully accepted the assistance of a hostile foreign power. I mean, what would they have said if that hostile foreign power was trying to inject and change the outcome of our political system, our elections, if, if they'd been working against the Trump campaign? Or, I mean, to me, that fact that the Trump campaign accepted willingly, gleefully, the assistance from a hostile foreign power. And then... What do you base gleefully on? Well, because if you read back, you look at it, there was a, a sense of excitement. But gleeful, to me, creates is just a way of expressing excitement. Fair enough, right? Then I don't think there's any argument that they tried to cover it up. Now, is that uh, obstruction or not? Or uh, we can you, That part hasn't, clearly hasn't been fully digested. But they lied about it. They tried to cover it up. This is our president. Shouldn't we expect something more from our president? And so does this merely become a campaign talking point for Democrats going into 2020? Or should there be some specific action that you back in Congress? Well, I think we should demand that Congress receive an unredacted full copy of the Mueller report. I think uh, Mr. Mueller should come and testify in front of Congress so America can hear exactly what his insights were. He's the one who's been immersed in all this information. You're not ready, it sounds like, to call for impeachment. Well, I think first you want to explore everything, right? And I think that that's, once you get an unredacted report, once Mueller testifies, I mean, now you're into hearings. And these hearings, they're going to play a role in just making sure that everyone understands the same facts. Also last week, first quarter fundraising numbers came out. You raised $2 million. And just by way of comparison, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders led with $18 million. Former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke had about $9 million in just 18 days. You've said that this is partially a function of their celebrity. How do you convince people to look beyond that and give to the Hickenlooper campaign? Well, I'm, I'm very proud that, that we raised a couple million dollars in, in a month. Uh, without any celebrity status. People have said from the beginning that, you know, coming from a state like Colorado and not being a senator who's been raising money nationally for a number of years, that that was a huge disadvantage. And we've never argued that it's a disadvantage. But I think it's a a disadvantage that we can overcome. How? Well, I think that over time, what we're talking about, I think I'm the only person running who can demonstrate over a you know, eight years as mayor, eight years as governor, and even my time as a small business owner in Lower Downtown, that I've been able to bring people together and get things done. And at a time when Washington is so flagrant in not being able to get anything done, so almost every other candidate is connected somehow with Washington, or even if they are not connected from Washington, they don't have the same record of of getting people together and getting things done. We got to almost 100% health coverage in Colorado. We got the oil and gas industry to work with the environmental community to create methane regulations. We worked hard to protect the rights of women's health care and reduce teenage pregnancy by 60% in Colorado. All these things are actual achievements, progressive achievements 
that the other candidates haven't succeeded at. Based on early polling, you've already earned a spot in the presidential debate scheduled for late June. Um, But there's another set of criteria which could kick in if the field gets too crowded, and that's having 65,000 donors to your campaign. Uh, As of last week, you had about a tenth of that, 6,600. I meanwhile look at someone like uh, Pete Buttigieg, who might actually be the candidate in the race with a name weirder than yours. Yes, I think that's that's inarguable. But uh, you, he wins. I, I see this mayor uh, who has tried to run for higher office in the past and failed. But the sort of electricity that has been around him, I wonder if you look at that and think, how do we create electricity? Do you think you have? Well, certainly we've created electricity in in different ways in different places. But I think Mayor Pete has, you know, he's having his moment. And he is obviously... Have you had yours? No, I don't think so. I think my moment is yet to come. Uh, I think Mayor Pete, you know, he speaks seven languages. He is super smart, right? I mean, I think it's fair to argue he might be the most intelligent of all the candidates running for president. But I'm not sure that's ultimately what the Americans are going to seek out when they decide who in the end they're going to vote for. And I think... Go look at the history of the Iowa caucuses over the last 20 years, 30 years. Again and again, the people that are winning in April or June or even in August and September, they rarely win. It's a long process of of Iowans. I mean, right now they're kind of falling in love with anybody. But when they get down to that caucus, they're going to decide who do they really want to take home? Who do they want to get married to? Is part of your strategy to hold on until the first Western primary? This is some insight that we got from Bill Richardson, the former New Mexico governor and presidential candidate, uh, that Westerners might want to hold in past Iowa, for instance. Yeah, well, certainly we'll go. We'll, I hope we and assume we'll go past Iowa just because we can't raise $15 million in a month or $9 million in a month doesn't mean we can't get our word out. And I think more and more we'll see, especially as we get through the summer, people in Iowa will make up their minds based on what people have done in their lives, what people have done uh, both in their private lives, but also as public officials. And I think, again, I'll stand, match our record against any of the other candidates running. Thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure. Former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper is running for president, one of almost 20 candidates seeking the Democratic nomination. State lawmakers have to wrap up their regular work for the year by next Friday. One big question hangs over these final days, whether they will change how sexual harassment complaints are handled at the state capitol. There are a lot of proposals, but not much agreement. CPR's Benta Berglund has been following the issue for the past year and a half. Hi, Benta. Hey, Ryan. Let's start with these proposals. What's actually been put on paper, if anything, and where do things stand? So far, the action's happening in the Senate The state Senate unanimously approved a rule change recently to create a bipartisan committee. It would be made up of two Democrats and two Republicans. This committee would handle complaints made against lawmakers or partisan staff. And the committee could hire outside investigators, consult with experts, and would make recommendations for consequences. And right now that falls to the Senate president. Also, Senate Bill 244 got its first hearing on Monday night. Under that measure, the state would release an annual summary on the number of formal complaints filed at the Capitol, how they were resolved. It would also require details of credible complaints investigated against state lawmakers 
to automatically be released to the public. Right now, that doesn't happen. It's not a public record. And that release would also include the lawmaker's name. There's one caveat. The Senate committee charged with handling complaints could decide to keep that information private with a two-thirds vote. Okay, so that's all going on in the state Senate. Um, The House hasn't done anything yet then, or what? Well, they're getting close. On Monday, Democratic House Speaker Casey Becker said they'll soon consider a rule change to set up a committee similar to the Senate's to handle complaints. And it will be made up of six representatives, three Republicans, three Democrats. So each chamber handles complaints against its own members. And Becker says she thinks it'll make the process better. If you remember, Becker oversaw the investigation into former Democratic Representative Steve Lebsock, and he was expelled from the legislature last year because of sexual harassment allegations. There won't be a single person in charge of formal complaints anymore. And I think that's a good thing. There's more accountability and more opportunity for discussion when it's not a single contact. And that policy change would require a two-thirds vote to pass the House because it's a rule change. But I gather there are aspects of how the Capitol handles workplace complaints that lawmakers just don't agree on. Yes, that's that's true. Confidentially, confidentiality for accusers is one big thing. A consultant studied the Capitol's culture and found the main reason people don't report harassment is the overwhelming fear of retaliation. So the question of who gets to know the identity of an accuser could impact whether people feel comfortable coming forward formally. Aaron Hottenstein is with the group Colorado 5050, which works to elect more women to office, and she's followed this issue closely. And she says having a legislative committee handle complaints would be a step in the wrong direction. Her group feels the legislature should hire a neutral third party to handle complaints and investigations, and lawmakers should only be involved at the end of the process when it comes to determining consequences for other lawmakers. The reason that we like that system better is that it protects the confidentiality of the complainants. And the process that they're talking about right now just has politics written all over it. The complaint is going to be known to more people than it was known to last year. And the process did not work well last year at all. So some of the concerns would you know, be more people knowing increases the chance of a leak, a conflict of interest, potential retaliation. The Capitol's a really small work environment. Also, the evenly split committees could end up deadlocked. So then there wouldn't be a clear path forward on potential consequences. But some lawmakers feel sitting legislators really need to have a substantive role in this process to understand all the evidence and allegations and feel comfortable meeting out consequences. Another discussion point, should the policy somehow cover lobbyists? Right now, lobbyists and other third parties in the building can file complaints against lawmakers, but they aren't covered by the policy if they're the ones doing the harassing. And you've actually reported on that situation this week, a sexual harassment complaint that a lawmaker filed against a lobbyist for allegedly grabbing her behind. So in a case like that, the legislature can't do anything? 
Officially not. You know, in this case, the underlying incident allegedly occurred four years ago, but it was only recently investigated and it was found credible. And so the Speaker of the House asked the lobbyist, Benjamin Waters, to complete sensitivity training. He agreed to do this, even though he denies the allegation and it was voluntary on his part. There's not really a lot of teeth there. But, you know, adding lobbyists to the official policy would require a two-thirds vote in both chambers. It's a joint rule change. And Democratic Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg says it's a complex issue. They work here. They are part of the workplace environment. But they are not legislators. They're not elected officials. So we need to sort of thread the needle of what happens if they are involved in a potential violation, who oversees that investigation, and what types of punishments are appropriate. So as you can tell, there are a lot of questions about how to do this before lawmakers can move ahead with any sort of comprehensive policy change. Ben to Berkland, you've been reporting on harassment at the Capitol for more than a year now. I imagine victims of harassment are closely watching this whole process. What are they saying? Because it's so complex, they're frustrated about how late in the session this is coming up. About a week ago, they were anxious, nothing meaningful would get done. Now some of them are nervous lawmakers could pass changes they feel would make the whole process worse. I talked about all this with Holly Terry. She's a former lobbyist and filed a sexual harassment complaint against former Representative Steve Lebsock. It was a part of a raft of complaints that led to him being expelled. It makes me wonder why we put so much on the line. It was a huge sacrifice, especially for the people who are still working there. And it's an absolute slap in the face for them to not fundamentally change the culture. Holly Terry there and Benta Berkland reporting uh, from the state capitol. She covers the state capitol for CPR News in these final weeks of session. As Colorado heads into the heat of wildfire season, new numbers show 2018 was one of the warmest and driest years in the state. But planning for climate change is not a top priority for many of the state's counties. Here's CPR health reporter John Daly. Last summer, Eagle County at the rooftop of Colorado's high country got hit hard. Happening right now, wildfires still burning in our state and claiming more homes today. The Lake Christine fire started a few blocks from the town of Basalt. Jill Ryan, at the time an Eagle County commissioner, says most folks evacuated or were told to stay inside. And one of the consequences of that was really poor air quality, the smoke that just settled in that valley. That's a big health hazard. Ryan, who now heads the state health department, says it was the first major wildland fire in this high-altitude county, and it stretched local governments thin. Meantime, winters in Eagle County are getting warmer and shorter, Combine that with hot, dry summers, and Ryan says things are getting more dangerous. When you have a lack of precipitation and heat, even in the 90s for a sustained period, it's the perfect recipe for a wildland fire. Eagle County began developing a climate action plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to prepare for warming. But a new report from the nonprofit Colorado Health Institute finds less than half 26 of Colorado's 64 counties have some sort of action plan to address climate change. Co-author Chrissy Esposito says that tracks with climate skepticism. Where we saw populations not believing that global warming is occurring or that will harm them personally, we saw their governments not having climate action plans or climate readiness resiliency plans. One local community, Larimer County, does have local climate initiatives. But it lacks an in-depth county climate action plan. 
John Kafalis is a county commissioner and former state lawmaker. He thinks local leaders can use the new index to better prepare, and he sees the benefits of zeroing in on the human health impacts of a warming state. Focusing on community health, focusing on clean air, clean water, clean land, those are issues that we can find more agreement regardless of political party and label. The report gives a roadmap to draw up plans. It measures a region's exposure, its risk of wildfires, extreme heat and drought. It gauges demographics, what populations may be vulnerable. Then it examines readiness. Esposito says that includes if communities have public health plans that consider possible impacts from the warming climate. Are you living in a floodplain or are you living in a wildland urban interface? And there are tools to help you assess that. The report finds southeast and northwest Colorado are most vulnerable. That's due to a high number of heat days and people seeking medical help for heat-related illnesses. Co-author Karam Ahmad says the hope is the report helps encourage local leaders to think about the impact warming is having on their community, their part of the state. Climate change can seem very daunting. This is a global health issue. But what we're trying to do here with this index is make it a local issue, a local issue that has local uh, implications, but also has local solutions. Extreme weather is making the issue feel more urgent and more local. And it's showing the planning that's been in place just isn't enough, whether it's Colorado's floods in 2013. Overnight flash flooding in Boulder, Colorado. Or California's campfire last year. Paradise is in ruins. Scores are missing. Whole neighborhoods burned to the ground. That fire killed nearly 90 people and destroyed 14,000 homes. Recent reporting shows officials in Paradise did make preparations for wildfires, but not for a catastrophic wind-driven ember storm. Some in Colorado watched that disaster from afar with nervous interest. The executive director of Colorado's health department, Jill Ryan, says these stories show local leaders the danger of not being ready for disasters on a scale not seen before. The planning is crucial. You'll have a much, much better response and mitigation and recovery. With the climate changing, Ryan says thinking ahead is a top priority. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Pretty much everybody's had a night or two or three like this. Oh well, at least you can catch up on sleep later, right? That's a question a CU researcher is going to help us answer. Chris Deppner studies physiology at CU Boulder and just published a study on this. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. How did you sleep last night? Actually, last night was pretty good for me. I knew I was getting up early today, so got a good night's sleep for me. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, Okay, but if I do (laughs) lose a few hours of sleep here and there, will it work? to catch up, say, on the weekend? Yeah, so the study that we just published, we actually looked at if you get sort of a work week of insufficient sleep, which is unfortunately really common in society. And the question was, if you do get those five days of insufficient sleep, can you actually catch up over just the weekend? Yeah. And the big take-home message was you can't. We looked at some sophisticated measures of sleep measurement, and that said no. Then we looked at body weight gain and regulation of blood sugar levels, and both of those also didn't recover after the weekend. So the take-home message was 
it doesn't look like it's possible if you get five days of insufficient sleep. And do you mean you can't catch up at all or you can't catch up sufficiently? That like there's zero benefit then to sleeping in on a Saturday? That's a great clarification. So over time, you definitely could catch up. It's just going to take longer than the two days that we have over the weekend because obviously you can only sleep so much in two days and it's just not enough time to totally catch up or recover. This is fascinating because I also hear advice in terms of what's been called sleep hygiene that I should set my alarm the same time every day, even on the weekends, that that kind of habit is good for my body. So square that with what you have found in this study. Is it just good that I have a regular wake-up time? So optimally, that is the best recommendation. You want to have a very consistent bedtime and wake time. Try and vary maybe within 30 minutes. So in our study, during the weekend, the participants, when they could sleep in or get the extra catch-up sleep, they chose to sleep in really late into the day. And they also chose to stay up really late at nighttime. So we kind of term this social jet lag. It's like they worked Monday through Friday on the East Coast, (laughs) went to the West Coast for the weekend, and then flew back to the East Coast on Monday morning. And that big shift in your sleep schedule actually has some negative health consequences. So that could be a factor in our study. Yeah, let's connect sleep. Uh, to more than just feeling groggy. What do we know happens to our bodies if we are routinely not getting enough sleep? So yeah, we know if you're not getting enough sleep, there's cognitive deficits. So drowsy driving, for example, is one of the issues with insufficient sleep. But then from a metabolic health standpoint, we know that people tend to eat more food and they tend to eat that food late at night when they are staying up. And then they that leads to weight gain. And then in this study, we also looked at blood sugar levels or your regulation of the blood sugar. And as that deteriorates, that increases your risk for diabetes. And so our lab and other labs around the world have shown that if you're not getting enough sleep, that increases your risk for developing diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So there's really a wide range of negative health issues associated with sleep loss. But you're only making the people who can't sleep during the weekday feel worse now. (laughs) You're not helping. And in fact, I've been in that position where I'm not getting sleep before like a big day at work. And then I stress about the fact that I'm not sleeping. Now I'm going to stress about the fact that I'm uh, reducing not only my work performance, but my health. Yes, totally. And it's not uncommon. I think all of us uh, are going to have some nights, especially if we have children or work issues or whatever, that is going to disrupt our sleep. That's not uncommon. And I think the message is don't stress about if you have a night or two where you're unable to get that seven to eight hours of sleep that night. The issue that would pop up with our study is if you do that on a regular basis, chronically, Monday through Friday, you're not getting enough sleep. So the recommendation is seven hours. So if you're below that for the – yes, exactly. So yeah, if you're below that for the work week and then consistently think you can catch up solely on the weekend and then you're sort of cycling back and forth regularly, that's where we're going to start to really see the sort of negative health consequences that I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. So just a night or two, that's, uh, you know, it's obviously not optimal. You're not going to feel great the next day, but it's nothing to be so concerned with. How do naps fit into this equation? And I'm not talking, you know, three and four hours, but you know, short naps. 
Definitely. Yeah. So we can see some health benefits, even from a cognitive standpoint and alertness and productivity at work. Even just a short 20 to 30 minute nap can actually be really beneficial. And uh, the the main recommendation there is just make sure that the naps are not too close to bedtime because that'll relieve some of your sleep pressure. The nap will. And then that can actually make it harder to go to sleep. Um, So, yeah, an afternoon nap can actually be a great way, especially if you are able to do that and you had a poor night of sleep the night before. A nap can really help. We didn't test NAPs specifically in our study, so that's kind of a future direction of research from a metabolic health standpoint. Could could the NAPs help prevent the weight gain and the dysregulation of your blood sugar levels? Uh, that's an open question. Just to be clear, are you saying that there's some benefit to weekday napping? Uh, in other words, if you could make time for that in the workplace? So, yeah, if you can make time for that in the workplace or, you know, depending on your work schedule or if you live close to home or however you could fit that in, if that's something that you feel you need, uh, that could be a very beneficial thing. Now, with that being said, if you find yourself needing to nap on a regular basis every day and you're feeling really tired, that's probably a sign that you're not getting enough sleep at nighttime. So you probably want to try and address your nighttime sleep. But as needed, uh, a naps can be quite helpful. I think this is so helpful because what you're saying is that the consistent weekend sleeping in, perhaps the desire for a nap every day is pointing to bigger issues that ought to be addressed, uh, not getting those seven hours. If someone is listening who's in that predicament, What is it that you recommend, that they talk to their doctor or they get off their phone before they hit bed? I know a lot of this has to do with the environment of the bedroom. Yes, that's exactly correct. So a lot of the issues are the environment. So, uh, you know, some of the best recommendations are to avoid that nighttime light exposure from our electronic devices that are so common now. So you can, you know, you want to dim your lights and dim the screens and you can even dim your TV now starting probably two hours before bedtime. So you can still use those devices, but try to minimize use and really dim the screens all the way. That, That really helps. And then try and avoid alcohol before bedtime. And then caffeine's another big one. And really, so the, the half-life of caffeine is about six hours, which means that afternoon cup of coffee can still be in your system at bedtime. So really try to just stick to the morning coffee and avoid the afternoon coffee because that can disrupt your sleep without you actually realizing it. I think my phone has a night shift option that sort of not only changes the brightness of the display, but the nature of the light as well. Hey, uh, help me understand the alcohol thing, because I think of alcohol as a depressant and I think of whiskey as an aid. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Why isn't it a good idea? So for the alcohol, it can sort of, it is a sedative, you're exactly correct. So it can help you sort of fall asleep or put another way, it can sort of help you lose consciousness quicker. But that sleep then, when you have the alcohol in your system, your sleep is really fragmented, which means you have a lot of microarousals throughout the night and you don't actually, you're not actually aware of these. We have to measure them in the lab. So alcohol really fragments your sleep and then it actually really disrupts or suppresses your REM sleep, which is your dream sleep. And that sort of happens in the second half of your night. And so even though alcohol can sort of help you as a sedative appear to fall asleep quicker, it really fragments your sleep throughout the night. And we do see negative consequences of that. Chris, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much. Yes, thanks for having me. Chris Stepner is an assistant professor of integrative physiology at CU Boulder. He's co-author of a study that recently appeared in the journal Current Biology. 
Still to come, a Colorado Wonders field trip to a massive pile of dirt in the heart of Denver. This is CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And it's that season again when street sweepers are out and when you get a ticket if your car is not out of their way. And Patrick Potyandi of Denver, does that sound familiar? It does sound very familiar. I was smart enough to get a ticket on the first day of street sweeping on April 1 there um, when I parked downtown uh, walking my way into work. On day one. Go big or go home. How much was the ticket? I think it was $50. Now, this ticket made you wonder about street sweeping. What are you curious about? Yeah, well, I've always been interested in um, urban history, actually, and why we do what we do in our cities. So I was kind of curious where street sweeping came from and why we do it. Well, Patrick, we've brought you to a Denver Public Works facility where they pile up some of what they sweep up. And we're here with my colleague, Kevin Beatty of Denverite, who's been investigating street sweeping. Hi, Kevin. Hello. What does street sweeping really accomplish, first off? So public works would say that street sweeping is not about giving out tickets. It's about cleaning up potential pollutants. So we're looking at a pile here full of stuff that could have ended up in the river or in the air, and instead it's ending up here and then eventually in a landfill. And it's really, it's pollution, really. Yeah, this pile, what would you say, Patrick, that's probably about eight, nine feet tall? Oh, at least, yeah, maybe taller. What's in it? So there are a lot of things in it. I would say most of it's kind of -of run-of-the-mill dirt. But you do have things like petrohydrocarbons, nitrogen, phosphorus, copper, lead, zinc, chloride, and mercury, although not all of those are represented in really high numbers. Patrick, resists the urge to go play on that pile. Yeah, exactly. I'm kind of wondering if we should take showers after we leave here. How many sweepers does it take to clean a city the size of Denver? Denver has 32 total sweepers. They just bought 21 new ones. And part of the reason why this pile is so big is that those new sweepers are more efficient. They're picking up more stuff. A lot more stuff. Is there more stuff to pick up as Denver grows? While the numbers of particulates and matter that have been picked up have increased since 2012, Public Works has said it's partially due to more efficient sweepers, but... Uh, There are a lot more cars on the road in Colorado and in Denver. Uh, In 2017, new vehicle registrations for cars and light trucks were the highest they've ever been in the state. So a lot of this stuff is coming from brake pads and tires. Now, I learned that uh, these street sweepers, many of them, are made in Italy. Who knew? Shoes, belts, and street sweepers. Uh, But what exactly are these street sweepers doing? Are they vacuums? Are they brushes? So there's a vacuum component, but there are giant brushes that are constantly spinning, kicking this stuff up and into the underside of the truck and into a container inside of it. And they come here and they dump it off. 
they also spray water on the street too. Give it a nice, fresh, clean look. Yes. I was just curious, you know, maybe how many people get tickets each year or every day or kind of whatever you're able to find out about that. Patrick, you are not alone. Uh, Public Works says in 2018 they gave out 160,000 tickets. Uh, do you want to guess how much those were worth dollar wise? Oh, geez. I was never, uh, math was never my strong suit. It ended up charging residents and people parking here over $8 million, 2018 alone. But it's really important, I imagine, Kevin, that those cars be moved. Yeah, I mean, every time you don't move your car, a street sweeper can't get to pollution that would otherwise end up in the air or in the water. Public Works has estimated about 600 miles of streets don't get swept each year, which is a lot. Now, it's early in the season, and there's a sizable pile of stuff here. Street sweeping goes through November. Can you give us a sense of the scale of what's being removed? So in 2018, Denver Public Works picked up 77,000 cubic yards of material, which came out to be 155 million pounds. And when I talked to them in 2016 about this, the analogy they said it was it could fill Coors Field nine feet deep, and it's higher today than it was back then. I'm just interested in urban history, and I wondered if it went back to even as far as the Progressive Era City Beautiful movements of the early 20th century. Patrick, can I just say what a nerd you are for asking about the history of street sweeping? I love it. Well, yeah, I've actually uh, studied history in undergrad and then went to graduate school for history as well. So um, very much the history nerd. So uh, you're correct. It does go back to the City Beautiful movement. Public Works pegs this at, like, early 1900s, although I found some photos of some really old street sweeping mechanisms. We have here, it's like a Model T pulling a street sweeping thing. We have another one here. This is a horse-drawn mechanism here on the back. Oh, how I long for the days of horse-drawn street sweepers. (laughs) Now, Denver is not the only community in Colorado that sweeps its streets. It's not just communities in Colorado. Uh, You see this happening on state highways, uh, into small towns in the mountains, larger cities down to the south. Everyone who does this cites an environmental concern. There is stuff to be cleaned up and to be kept out of watersheds and out of the air everywhere. How are you feeling about that ticket now, Patrick? I feel even happier to have paid it because I think this is clearly a really important process. Move your car next time, dude. Totally. And always look at those signs, even though you've been parking downtown all winter. Patrick Patyandi of Denver getting his Colorado Wonders questions answered by my colleague Kevin Beatty of Denverite. What do you want to know about our state? Ask through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. Okay, now let's curl up with a good murder mystery. This one's nominated for a Colorado Book Award. In her kind of case, a 16-year-old boy from Colorado Springs appears to be a white supremacist and confesses to murder in the death of a gay man. It seems open and shut, but a top-notch defense attorney sees it differently. Her Kind of Case is written by Jeannie Weiner of Boulder. She's a former criminal defense attorney herself who spent a career on cases like the one in her book. Hi, Jeannie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You had a successful career. You were part of a landmark gay rights case, which challenged Amendment 2 in Colorado. It would have prevented cities and towns in this state from recognizing homosexuals as a protected class. I wonder, did you stop being a lawyer because you wanted to instead create art? Well, um, I I have had really a couple of passions in my life. And um, I've wanted to be a writer since I was five years old. 
And uh, back then, I wrote poetry, and I was very influenced by the Three Stooges. Okay. So a lot of their imagery was in my early poetry. And uh, I always thought that at some point in my life, I would be a writer. But I also um, ended up being a criminal defense attorney, and I really loved that, too. It was an honor and a privilege to represent people and try to help them or save them or at least steer them in a better direction than they were going. But I wrote on the side uh, all, all the time that I was a lawyer, and it became kind of increasingly clear as I was getting older that at some point I did need to quit and write full-time. Okay, your main character is a formidable female attorney in Denver named Lee Isaacs. She is a Taekwondo master. She's about to turn 60. What's her frame of mind when we meet her in the book? Well, her frame of mind is she is unhappily contemplating her upcoming 60th birthday. And maybe for the first time in her life, she is wondering if she still has exactly what it takes to do the very best job that she expects of herself. She's a perfectionist. She has a lot of pride uh, in her work and feels that if she can't be the very best at being a karateka as well as a criminal defense attorney, then maybe she doesn't want to be there at all. And about a year before the book takes place, she has actually lost a high-profile murder case. And so um, she is uncharacteristically hesitant to take this one at the beginning of the book because she's just a little bit worried about her instincts and about her uh, her winning touch and whether or not it may be on its way out. The loss of that earlier case is not the only loss in her life, by the way. She's lost someone very dear to her, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Is Lee Isaacs a somewhat idealized version of you? Um, or or maybe unidealized version. <laughs> well, you know, uh, my publisher had me answer some questions and answers for the uh, press kit. And one of the questions was whether I identified with any of the uh, characters in the book. And I wrote, well, of course, but I have a lot more friends than Lee. And, okay. um, <laughs> Are and, you a nicer person than this protagonist? I don't know that I'm a nicer person. Um, we both definitely tried cases in the same way. And I certainly do have a lot in common with Lee. But besides having more friends, I'm probably much more emotionally effusive than she is, and maybe more melancholy. But I did have a lot of the same fears that she had about getting older and, and, and wondering when it was the right time to stop being a lawyer when was the right time to leave the party before, you know, being swept out with the garbage? And and like a, a lot of older attorneys, I was starting to think about when was the optimal time to quit. Did you make the right decision? You know, I did. Okay. I saw that the party was winding down. I grabbed my coat. I thanked my hosts. And I left. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new novel, Her Kind of Case. It is set in Colorado. Its author is Jeannie Weiner, and she's a former criminal defense attorney, as is her protagonist, Lee Isaacs. So as we said earlier, Lee takes on this murder case. 
Even though Jeremy, the 16-year-old, has confessed his clothes have the victim's blood. And it made me think about how criminal defense attorneys, especially who charge an arm and a leg like Lee, go about choosing clients. Help us understand how you made that decision. Was it all gut instinct on whether to take a case? Well, um, one of the things I talk about in the book is that Lee tells the defendant's aunt that uh, she'll take the case if she feels like there's a fit. Yeah. And, uh, and a fit is, is when she has a sense that there's, there'll be at least some possibility of connecting with the client in some authentic way so that ultimately she can build up a little bit of trust so that the client will ultimately take her advice. And you do have to have some kind of real connection with your client because ultimately at some point you may be advising them to take a deal for a very long time in prison or you may be telling them to take a chance and go to trial and risk, uh, if you lose, uh, a long sentence. Lee's client has such a chip on his shoulder at first and he's so unwelcoming to her. Did you often face that where you had to get past a sort of tough exterior and see the possibility of the person within. That happened over and over again. And, um, and it was, in my opinion, the best criminal defense attorneys really know and have learned how to find something to love or like or pity or empathize with in their clients. And if they can't, then they won't have that connection. They won't have client control and their clients won't trust them. So often I would start out in a pretty tough relationship with a client. I'd have nothing in common with them. And in this case, I I picked a, a, a protagonist who is, you know, approaching her 60th birthday. She's Jewish. She's a liberal uh, attorney. And uh, she's going to have to try to connect with a 16-year-old skinhead. Not easy. Not easy. And, and the people you had to find that humanity in had often done really awful things. Um, I mean, men, it's just that, that, that simple. That, that really is true. But I would often separate what people had done or had been accused of doing from who they were. And I also understood that a lot of the people that I represented had backgrounds or bad things happen to them that could explain a lot of the reasons why they may have done what they were accused of. And that's certainly true for the young man in this book, her kind of case. There's a lot of repartee that goes on between the main character, Lee, and the district attorney who she's up against in the trial. They have a history, and they seem to anticipate the arguments the other will make. How accurate is that portrayal? I mean, I have to think when you practice law in one place for long enough, you get to know the characters well enough, the real life characters, that you might be able to anticipate. I think that, you know, a lot of people have asked me, was it really that fun or that um, challenging to relate to the district attorneys who were on the opposite side of your cases? And I would have to say that there were a number of prosecutors in Boulder that I really liked a lot and I enjoyed sparring with. And of course, I still did everything I could possibly do to uh, get my clients the very best deal or at least to explain why they behaved the way they did or to, you know, win their cases. Thanks so much for being with us, Jeannie. I appreciate your time. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan.
Boulder novelist Jeannie Weiner has written Her Kind of Case, which is nominated for a Colorado Book Award. We spoke last September. Winners will be announced next month. Finally today, how visual art became a poem and ultimately a song. It's part of a project called Shared Visions from the Boulder-based Ars Nova Singers. This all began in an art gallery. Poets visited from across the state and began writing. Their poems were collected in an anthology, and that led to new choral music from four Colorado composers, including Paul Fowler, who wrote a piece called Yet Another Layer. Music from composer Paul Fowler for the Shared Visions Project, presented by the Ars Nova Singers. They'll host performances April 26th and 27th in Cherry Hills Village and Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News.